take that Bible and uh, open it to uh, James chapter 5. We come to patience and endurance part two. And do take the opportunity to come and bring someone this week to Summerfest. Austin is an excellent preacher of God's word. You'll be greatly encouraged. Your kids will enjoy it. And we'll be able to minister to one another as we hear the Word of God. Well, look over in your Bible to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we come to that section in verses 7 through 11. Now, I said last week that the theme of this section is patience in the midst of trials. Patience in the midst of trials. If you look down in your Bible, you'll see that he uses this word patience or steadfastness or steadfast six different times just in verses 7 through 11. Look at verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. If you look again at verse 7, in the middle of verse 7, a second time that word is used, he talks about being patient about it. In other words, the farmer is patient about his early and late rains. You'll note a third time that word is used in James 5, 8, where he says, you also be patient, okay? So you see that word mentioned those times right there alone. If you look down at verse 10, we'll look at this today. He'll say a fourth time as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. It's mentioned there. And then you'll note as you look down on the word of God at verse 11, He'll talk about a different word. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And then he'll use that word a second time in verse 11, where he says there, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So pretty simple as you begin to teach the Bible, you see there's its theme. It's patience and steadfastness. Sometimes that word steadfastness is translated the word endurance. Okay, so those two words control the paragraph. There is a a maxim, an old maxim that says, patience is a virtue which all admire, but few attain. I think that's good. It's a virtue. We all admire it, but only a few attain. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, said that there are no sins God's people are more subject to than unbelief and impatience. He said, did Watson, they are ready either to faint through unbelief or to, he said, fret through impatience. Are you fretting, in Thomas Watson's word, through impatience? Maybe just as we glance down at that word mentioned four times, the word patience, what is it again? What is that word? What does it mean? And certainly, what is the context in which it comes to us? Patience is this. It's a godly reaction to trials. That's what it is. It's a godly reaction to trials. Patience is the ability to bear trials without grumbling, without complaining. Patience is a God-given restraint in the face of difficult circumstances. That's what patience is. I said a God-given restraint in the face of difficult circumstances. I said that because patience, as you know, is listed in Galatians chapter 5 as a fruit of the what? Spirit. You've got to be walking in the Spirit to manifest the fruit of patience. I said that it was God-given because patience is listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on the love chapter where it says that love, the first one, is what? Patience. And so it's a God-given restraint in the face of difficult circumstances. The word patience in the scripture is used again and again to describe, remember we said last week, to describe patience with people. It's not so much patience with circumstances or even events. When you see that word here, macrothumia, it's always in the context of patience with people. And so a little closer as we dig, patience is the ability to be wronged and wronged again and have the power to retaliate 
but never think of it. Patience describes a person who does not get irritated. Are you irritated? Were you irritated this morning? Were you irritated this week? Did you lose your patience this week and become impatient? And not just with circumstances. Are you patient with people? Are you patient with people in your own home? Are you patient with people that you work with? Are you patient with your brothers, with your sisters? And the list can go on. You know, when you think about this, that word patience, it's really a Christian concept. And I say a Christian concept because it really wasn't used at all back when you look at the, the history of the word and even the context in which it comes. In fact, in the Greek world, patience was not even considered a virtue. In fact, if you showed patience in the Greek world, it was considered a sign of weakness. I mean, that's what they would say. In fact, Aristotle, the famous philosopher, defined virtue when he was describing the theme of virtue. He wrote a book of virtue. He described virtue as the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and a readiness to strike back at any hurt. That's a virtue. If somebody does you, then you need to get them back. That was virtue. Never let anyone get away with anything. And I think our culture certainly identifies with that thinking. Our Hollywood heroes all strike back. We use that phrase, sometimes he got a pound of flesh. Sometimes I hear that phrase, he sure told them off. Or we sometimes say, boy, he sure got his revenge. But beloved Grace Church, God's word says the opposite. It says that when you and I are filled with the Spirit, you will be macrothemia, patient with people. In fact, remember I said last week that this word for patience is literally just in the biblical language. It means to be long-tempered. It describes someone, the etymology of the word, of someone who was long-fused. Okay, had a long fuse. Sometimes we say of someone who's angry, they have a very short, what? Fuse. See, this is the opposite. It's patience with people. You don't have a short fuse and then you could just go ballistic or you could just go off. No, somebody who's patient has a long fuse. In fact, don't laugh on this. It's, there's truth in this. In the Hebrew, the word conveys the thought of being long in nostrils. Okay. Now, don't go home today at lunch and say that the preacher talked about being long in nostrils. But it's the etymology back being built into the Hebrew language that the nostrils were what anger was vented through, okay? So you think of a picture of a man who's just an angry man who is just huffing and puffing and breathing heavy through his nose, Sometimes we use the phrase, man, that person is, you ever use that phrase, fuming mad? Because they're just breathing through their nose and they're just huffing and puffing. But one who is patient, you see, is long-suffering, is long-tempered, literally is long in nostril. The ideal is it takes a long time before fuming anger spews out. So how do we then... Put patience into practice when mistreated. How do you put patience into practice when you've grown resentful? What do you do when someone ridicules you? What do you do when someone insults you? Maybe some of you are facing outright persecution for your faith. And certainly that's the context in which James wrote here. The rich were causing those who were poor to... They were taking their money from them, taking, not paying them their money and so forth. And they were living in luxury, chapter 5. They were living in self-indulgent. And so some were being persecuted for their faith. In fact, it says in 5.6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And maybe some of you are facing that at work, facing that at school, whatever it may be. Maybe some of you are facing difficulty with your finances, and finance isn't so much patience with people. Finances is an event. But when often when the money is shrunk, you become impatient with people through finances. Or you've got a friend who lets you down. Or a child who lets you down. Or a boss 
who is making your life super, super difficult. Or you're living with a spouse who is disobedient to the Scripture. Living with someone who does not walk in obedience to the Scripture. And maybe some of you maybe find yourself enduring abuse if it's not just physical, it may be emotional. And so I'm asking you, Grace Church of the Valley, are you patient with people? Jerry Bridges, the great writer, said this, every day God patiently bears with us, and every day we are tempted to become impatient with our friends, neighbors, and loved ones. And our faults and failures before God are so much more serious than the petty actions of others that tend to irritate us. He said God calls us to graciously bear with the weaknesses of others, tolerating them and forgiving them even as he has forgiven us. And so are you patient? Are you patient in relationship? Maybe you need to be patient with a coach. Maybe you're trying to be patient with a player. Maybe, as I said, it's a brother or sister. Tell me how you're doing with this biblical quality. Now, Kent Hughes said that this Jewish church here to which James writes was being kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball. And they were suffering for their faith and becoming impatient with people. And the question that James is exposing is, what can be done? What can we do in light of these circumstances with people that sometimes make the Christian faith difficult to live out? And lest you respond sinfully to difficult circumstances, he challenges you not to lose your patience in trial with people. And so here's the question then. How do you endure trials with unflinching patience and endurance? And James is going to tell us what the proper response to trials is. And so we're asking the question, what does he say to these believers by way of encouragement? What does he say to these believers by way of exhortation? But listen, I believe as fresh as he wrote it to them, He's saying it to you. I don't think you're exempt from this. I don't think I'm exempt from this. In fact, usually if I just look at life itself, something's bugging you and someone's bugging you and somebody's irritating you and somebody's got an irritating habit and they're in your life for a reason. And so how are you responding to it? So as you walk here into this text, remember we're looking at feature number nine, that our faith is tested in response to the wealthy, okay? And he gave an exhortation, remember, in verses 1 through 6, to the rich unbeliever. And as I thought about that, I think it shows that way in your notes, an exhortation to the rich unbeliever. It's not really an exhortation to the rich unbeliever. Why would James be talking to unbelievers? It's really an exhortation about the rich unbeliever, but he told it to encourage us because these rich unbelievers... We're taking advantage of everybody and everything in terms of their business. And so then it led, secondly, to the exhortation to the faithful believer. And remember in verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Here's the response. You need to be patient. You could also see it again in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And he keeps talking about brothers. He'll say it in verse 12. But of all, above all, my brothers do not swear. There's no mention of the word brothers in 5, 1 through 6 because he's basically describing what these rich unbelievers did. So in light of that carnage being kicked around like a soccer ball, he exhorts us in verses 7 through 12. Here's the question that I want you to ask. How do you endure life's trials? with unflinching patience and endurance. And what I want you to do this morning, right now, there's somebody in your mind, there's something that you're impatient about. And I want you to lock that in. And I want you to ask, what's a biblical response to this? It could be your mother-in-law. It could be your father-in-law. It could be somebody, your owner, your business, your principal, another student, a football player, a gymnastics player, whatever it might be. It's somebody, something's going on. How do you respond in light of that and to this week? And what he does here in this text is give two practical guidelines that enable you to be patient in light of these difficult circumstances. And the key is patience. And we looked at the first guideline last week. He said, remember the Lord's coming. Remember? 
Remember the Lord's coming. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord. The one thing that's going to be a guideline to help you and I be patient is some things in this world will never be fixed. But what I think is just fascinating, and I didn't mention this last week, he doesn't say go and grab a picket. He doesn't say go up and bear arms. He doesn't say go up and create a barricade. He doesn't tell them to be revolutionaries, does he? He actually says to you and to I, who are suffering at times under the mistreatment of other people, you need to remember the Lord's coming. You need to remember that everything isn't always going to work perfectly and that some things only will be fixed at the second coming of Christ. So what he does right away is pull us off our immediate problem and sends us, if you will, to the second coming where Jesus Christ will come back. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And the Lord will come and he will make those things right. And then remember, he gave us a picture that he provided. The farmer, he's waiting for the early rains. He's waiting for the later rains. He's, verse 7, being patient about it until he receives it. And he talks about us here. Remember the Lord's coming and be like the farmer who's waiting for these things. And secondly, he established the power. The power is supplied. He told us there in verse 8 to establish your hearts. And he told us to build up, to prop up our heart. And we addressed that last week. And then finally, in verse 9, he talked about the perpetrator being cited. He cites it, right? And the perpetrator, verse 9, was do not grumble against one another, brothers. He begins to cite that perpetrator, the tongue, in the midst of great difficulty can be the sometimes the very thing that gets us in trouble. So he gave us this reminder. He gave us this remembrance. He said, remember the Lord's coming. But there's more. Look, it's not only the Lord's coming. And here's where we come today. Verse 10. He says, an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He said, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So first guideline, he says, you need to remember the Lord's coming. Secondly, as it's there in your notes, you need to reflect on the Lord's servants. Okay, you need to reflect on them. This is what he's saying to you. He's giving you a couple examples. He's given me a couple examples. He gives two examples of those who suffered patiently is the thought. One was the prophets and second was that biblical character Job. Now, you'll note, look at verse 10. They are an example of suffering and patience. They are given to us as a model for us to follow. In other words, you need to remember the Lord's coming. And then secondly, you need to reflect on the Lord's servants. Now, the first example, look at verse 10 again. He says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, James doesn't show these prophets necessarily as extraordinary people with superhuman power, but ordinary people in the face of great trials who endured patiently. Now, look down in just verse 10 one more time. He adds a little word here, as well as those other key ones. He says as an example of, and he mentions this, suffering and patience, okay? You can almost put them together. These are examples of those who suffered patiently. And that word there for suffer, just as we build this in verse 10, is they suffered, the word is, they suffered ill treatment, okay? So they suffered ill treatment by people, and the thought is they were patient in the midst of it. But he says first here in verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so he calls our mind back to the prophets as an example. And you don't have to go far, both in Old and New Testament, to realize that these prophets that God raised up, that he gave voice to, that he gave utterance to, suffered greatly for what they did. I'm thinking of Jesus Christ in Matthew 23. Imagine if you heard this message in the temple when he said, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. He said, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. 
He's preaching that. And he said, so you testify against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He told them to their face, you've murdered the prophets. Jesus said, fill up then, in Matthew 23, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Then he went on to say, you brood of vipers. He said, you serpents, how will you escape the sentence of hell? He says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in the synagogues. You will persecute from city to city so that they may fall, that the guilt may fall. Uh, He said, of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So he looks back at the nation of Israel and said that they literally murdered the prophets that God Almighty had sent to them. And these prophets were an example to us of suffering and patience. Later in that chapter, Jesus said this, and you might remember the refrain in Matthew 23, 37, when he said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, he said the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This was a city where God would give them a messenger. That messenger would come and speak and they would kill the prophets and murder the prophets. In fact, by the time you get to the book of Acts in Acts 7.52, Stephen was so bold that he said this in 7.52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, it was so bad, he wants to know which one did they not persecute? He said they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So not only did they kill the prophet, they killed the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these prophets suffered greatly and they're examples of that. I mean, we don't have time, but I just put together a little bit for you. I mean, and then I want you to think of your problem. And here's the example of those who suffered patiently for us in the midst of our problem. I mean, you think about the prophet named Jeremiah. He was called the what? The weeping prophet. He had trial in the book of Jeremiah by death threats. So as he spoke for the name of the Lord, I just read some in Jeremiah chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah 26, that after they heard him speak, they wanted to cut him off. That's the word. They said, we're going to destroy him. They then, after he spoke, wanted to plot his death. And then after they heard him another time, they said, you shall die. Now that was hard for Jeremiah because he was called to preach. In fact, he was called from his mother's womb to preach. And as he preached, it got him nothing into nothing but problems in his own life. And so he suffered patiently. But he had trial by death threats. He had diet trials by isolation in Jeremiah chapter 15. Because of his ministry, it forced him to be alone all day. Then by the time you get to Jeremiah chapter 19, they put him in stocks. They just bound him hand and foot. Then they arrested him in chapter 26. Then he was challenged by another priest in Jeremiah 28. Then he had a trial by destruction. They lowered him into a cistern, and he just sat in a pit of mud. This is all that Jeremiah went through. Why? Because he was speaking for the Lord. Then he had trial by starvation and trial by chains and trial by rejection. I mean, it's incredible when you look at his life, what he endured. And this is what God's word is saying is you take some of these prophets like a Jeremiah. He had a very long temper with people. How about you? You suffered like that. You've had death threats on your life. You had people who say you shall die. You've had people who who come after you, who drop you into a pit of mud. And if it wasn't for a rescue operation, they would have left them alone to starve and die. You talk about macrothumia. Jeremiah had it. He was suffering even hardship. Jeremiah suffered patiently. He's an example for us. But then that's not all. I think of Ezekiel. How would you like to be Ezekiel when God says, I'm going to take your wife from you? And the Lord took out his wife as an illustration to the nation of Israel that he was going to take them out through captivity. Then after his wife died in Ezekiel 24, He was exhorted by God to not mourn her death. I mean, this is incredible. You look at what Ezekiel began to, you know, 
was put under. He was housebound, at least in Ezekiel chapter 3. He was tied up by, by other people. He was forced by God to become mute. How would that be? It says that the tongue clung to his mouth and he couldn't speak. And then people would go by and they'd say, there's Ezekiel. And they'd be like, he couldn't speak as an example that God was going to make the nation of Israel go away. In fact, it's bizarre in Ezekiel chapter 4. He had to lie on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. I don't take that that he laid on his one side for 390 all day and his other side for 40. But we believe that it was a sign of judgment to the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south. So when people would come by, they'd see Jeremiah laying on his right side for part of the day and laying on his left side part of the day as a sign to Israel that they were going to be lying down when the other kingdoms came. In fact, it's hard to believe in Ezekiel chapter 4, he had to eat in an unclean manner. If you want to take some time, you can go back and look at Ezekiel 4, what it meant to eat in an unclean manner. Basically, what he was using for his fuel was human dung because it was an example that he had to give to the nation that they were going to be fuel for the other nations. I mean, this is a guy who had to walk through all of that. He had to shave his head. He had to shave his beard. He had to become subject to humiliation because the nation would forego, would, would soon have humiliation in their life. Then on another time in Ezekiel chapter 12, imagine this. Imagine if this was you. He had to pack his bags and dig through a wall in Jerusalem as an example. So imagine he carried his bags out in the day. He had his bags right next to him because they were going to be deported into the, into the Babylonian nation. And before the deportation happened, he would take his bags and he would literally start crawling under and dig under walls and go out the other side. Imagine if you were there and you're saying, well, who's that? Well, that's the prophet Ezekiel. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's just kind of digging through a wall. Well, it's just on the other side. He's going to end up over there. Well, what's he doing? Well, I don't know. He's, he's a prophet. He's a little weird. And they begin to, he had to do this, all these things for the nation to show them as a sign. And then how about this? In Ezekiel chapter 12, he was told by God to eat his bread with quaking and drink his water with trembling. So imagine if you're a prophet of God and you had to eat and you're just shaking, eating your bread. Then you pull up the cup and you're just shaking it because it was going to be a picture of what would happen to the nation when judgment came. And then he had to go mute for a season and another time at Ezekiel 24. He's an example of suffering and patience, is he not? So I think James is just saying, listen, you need to remember the Lord's coming. He's coming back. But secondly, you need to reflect on the Lord's servants. These men were great examples to us of those who suffered patiently under difficult trial. I mean, think of Daniel torn from his household home at 13 years of age and thrown into the den of lions because of his faithfulness to God. Some people think when he was thrown in there, he was thrown in as a young man. You'd be wrong. Go back to the chronology. He was probably 60 when he was thrown into the den of lions. He was a prophet, and he suffered for some of those things. God miraculously came through. Think about Isaiah. So what happened to him? Just go like this. History has it that he was sawn in two. Son in two, because he spoke for the Lord. So listen, when you and I think that our trials are, are difficult, you've got to remember the Lord and you've got to reflect on these servants. Isaiah was obedient. He was son in two. Then you think of Hosea when God said, Hosea, you go take Gomer as your wife. She's a harlot because I want to picture that marriage of what this nation has become to me. They've played the harlots. Then you get to the New Testament. I don't know if he's really a prophet, but you think of Stephen in chapter 7 who was stoned to death. And he says he's falling to his knees. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He was long fused. The point being, there's no vengeance in him, no retaliation in him, no animosity in him. He was praying for his enemies. Then you think of the Apostle Paul. It doesn't say in the New Testament, but we believe according to tradition, his head was severed from his body on the way to the Ignatian way. 
They put his head and his neck in a guillotine and it just took him instantly into glory. Then you think of the apostles, somewhat of somewhat prophets. They were all murdered except for John. They were all martyred. Then you think of James, the very one that we're preaching out of, was taken to the top of the pinnacle and he was thrown off the temple to his death. Now all these men, look back in the text. Here's what I want you to see. He says, take the prophets in 510 who spoke, what? In the name of the Lord. And and I think James adds that for us is, is this. They did nothing wrong, beloved. They did nothing wrong. All they did was speak in the name of the Lord and they still suffered. Because maybe you're saying this morning, I've done nothing wrong and I'm experiencing it. That may well be. In fact, you may be absolutely righteous. You may be persecuted for no reason of your own stupidity, I could say. It's not you. Something's taking place in your life. And these men spoke in the name of the Lord. They did nothing wrong. And what more shall I say? At least the writer of Hebrews would say in 11. He said, for time would fail for me to tell you about Gideon. Hebrews 11. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, And the prophets who suffered, it says, not who suffered, but who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, who became mighty in war, who put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. And then in Hebrews 11, in the same text, it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, it says, and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So here's what the Word of God says to you. I have no idea where you are, but you need to remember the Lord's coming and secondly, you need to reflect on the Lord's servants. They suffered patiently they were long fused and in fact look at the text in verse 11 i think he just adds this he says behold he said we considered those blessed who remained steadfast so what does that mean we consider those blessed who remain steadfast i think the thought is as i read them we don't in this sense pity them not at all we would look back and say, what a hard life, but we'd say they're blessed. We would look back on these people in Hebrews 11 and the prophets, and we would say they're heroes to us. We'd look back and we'd admire them. You probably read your kids' and grandkids' biographies on them. They are not only to be complimented by you, but they're to be copied by you. And I think Blanchard put it well. He said, if they suffered so much and were persecuted so greatly, yet endured so courageously, should we not be encouraged to bear our smaller burdens with the same resolute faith? End of quote. And the answer would be yes. What are you struggling with? I mean, what's causing you to be long-fused towards people? Have you resisted to the point of blood, as it would say later in Hebrews chapter 12? But here, it says there, it says they were, verse 11, they were blessed who remains steadfast. And he changes the word there, doesn't he? In verse 11, steadfast is the other word that we've talked about in James chapter 1 for endurance. We said that the word steadfast is the ideal of being under a circumstance. So now he said, we count those blessed who remain steadfast. Remember the thought was they remained under the weight until God said it was done. They were able with tenacity to, it's not so much patience with people, but patience and endurance and steadfastness with circumstances. And I'm thinking of Jesus when he said, blessed are you when people insult you and when they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And he said, rejoice and be glad. Maybe here's the key for your reward in heaven is great. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. They persecuted the prophets. They may indeed persecute you. And listen, if you remain steadfast, you will be blessed. In fact, look back to James chapter 1 just for a second. Let me show you that. Remember, he was talking about trials there and one, two of various kinds. He said, you know that the testing of your faith produces, there's our word in one, three, steadfastness, the ideal of endurance, the ability to remain under the weight. And then he said in verse four, let steadfastness have its full effect. But I want to point you to James 1.12. Blessed, there's that thought, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. How is that man blessed? Well, God's favor is upon you. You're becoming more like Christ in the midst of the trial. And so here's what James says. He says, take the prophets. They suffered patiently. But then he gives us a second example. Would you look in verse 11? He says there, you have heard of the steadfastness of who? Job. Interesting. He talks about the prophets. Then he pulls out one particular one, focused. And he says, you have heard of, I'm used to this other word, the endurance of Job or the steadfastness of Job. You remember the story of Job begins in heaven where Satan, amazing picture, was accusing him before God. And remember, God mentioned Job. He said this to Satan. He said, for there is no man like him on the earth. He's a blameless man. He's an upright man. He fears God. He turns away from evil. Satan said this, excuse me, the Lord said that to Satan right in, uh, Satan was in his presence. And Satan responded and said to the Lord, does Job fear God for what? Nothing. Satan basically says to him, well, no wonder he fears you. Look what you've done. He's a wealthy man. Look at his family. Look at his flock. Look at his kids. Look at everything you've given him. And Satan said to him, does he fear God for nothing? Basically what Satan says, if you take away his props, Job's going to curse you, is what he says. And then very quickly in Job 1, there's four painful messages of death that decimates Job. It just destroys Job. The first message of death arrives and tells Job in 115 that the Sabaeans have taken all his oxen, all his donkeys, and killed all of his servants. Imagine that if you're a landowner. You get a message. You're sitting in your office one day, and all your equipment is gone, okay? And all your servants have been killed. Then a second message of death comes in, and he tells Job that fire from heaven has consumed all all of his sheep, and all of his servants on that side of the field. And then as that second message of death comes in, as he finishes the sentence, the third messenger of death arrives and tells Job that the Chaldeans have taken all of his camels and executed all of his servants who were watching them. And then if that's not enough, as he's finished with that sentence, the fourth messenger of death tells Job, it's hard to believe, and I did... His children are dead. He said, Job, you won't believe it. A house just fell on all of them. And they're gone, Job. All of them. And in a matter of four quick messages, he's decimated. He's destroyed, if you will. He lost all of his ten children. In that one last message, he lost his seven sons. And he lost his three daughters. And so here he said, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You know that that's not the end of the story. He's got boils in Job chapter 2 from the top of his head down to the bottom of his toes. In fact, it says in Job 2.13 that his suffering was great. In Job chapter 2, he's got itching, severe itching. 
severe irritation. He's in great grief. In chapter 3, he lost his appetite. I think so would you, right? He has agonizing discomfort in 324. He can't go to sleep at night in Job 7, verse 4. He's got insomnia. It says that his nights were full of tossing. And then he said, when I look at my flesh, this is what he said, they're worm infested. He got dust all over his body and he's got worms coming out of his flesh. He's got boils, oozing boils all over his skin. Chapter 7, verse 14, he's got hallucinations at night because of how he feels. He's got decaying skin in 1328. He said in Job 16 that he's being shriveled up because of disease. He's got relentless pain in chapter 30. His skin literally turned black on him. He's got a raging fever. He's got dramatic weight loss in Job 33, 21. So here's what James says to you. Look at it again. He says, you have heard of the what? The steadfastness of Job. Now, some of you might be asking, really? I mean, really, Job? I mean, if you've read through Job, you thought, was he steadfast? I mean, when you begin to read his outburst against his so-called comforters, you'd wonder if he was steadfast or his impassioned protest, even to God himself, one might not always concur with James' statement. In fact, if you read Job, you might even say Job was a bit defensive. He was maybe even a little self-righteous. In fact, I would be as bold to say that at times he was impatient. Certainly impatient with those sorry comforters that the Lord had given him, right? In fact, when you go back to Job chapter 3, he communicated his misery to God. He cried out in his confusion to God in chapter 7. How can we understand this? How was he an example to us of patience? Well, uh, look back at the text again. This is fascinating to me. It's the word of God. It says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he says, You have heard of the, what's the word? The steadfastness of Job. Now, I think it's interesting. He doesn't use the word for patience. That's the word macrothemia. You got a long fuse. You're long in nostril. You're patient with people. He doesn't say that. Look at verse 11. He said he's heard of the steadfastness of Job. And that word for steadfastness means to stay, abide, to remain under. In other words, what James is saying is that Job endured. He was steadfast. He was resolute. Now, Job certainly was not perfect. He lost his cool with his friends. But here's the point. He never gave up on God. So here, macrothumia is patient with people, but hupomene, that word for steadfast, is to remain under in difficult circumstances. And here's what I would say. Job is an example of steadfastness because he never abandoned his faith in God. That's the point. In other words, you got people who are being kicked around like a soccer ball in the Mediterranean world, being abused by rich people. The ones, they they weren't paid. And then what they had was taken from them. All the while, these people were living in luxury and living in wealth and even murdering people, according to 5.6. And he says, don't forget, don't forget the endurance of Job, that in the midst of all of it, he never abandoned his God. Let me show you just for a second. Would you go back to Job? Go back to Job chapter 1, because here's what he wrote in day one of his journal. He remained steadfast. And I guess I'm begging the question, are you? Are you? How are you doing with this? How are you doing with your trial? How are you doing with your circumstance? He says, remember his coming and reflect on his servants. Do you remember this in day one of his journal in 121, where it says that, basically go back to 19. Behold, a great wind came across, 119, the wilderness, and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose. What would you have done? Tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and what? He worshipped. And he said, Naked I've come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away 
Blessed be what? The name of the Lord. And here's the key, 122. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with what? Wrong. He endured. So he's given us as an example of one who endured. Go down to chapter 2. Again, it says, the Lord said to Satan, and I'm in 2-2, from where have you come? And Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth and blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now watch what God said to Satan. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a reason. He still holds fast his integrity. Man, I know some people who would bail on God for that. Not Job. He remains under the weight. Oh, he may have lost his patience, but he never lost his steadfastness. Even though God, the Lord had incited him, or excuse me, Satan had, it said very clearly that he still holds fast his integrity. Look over at chapter 2, verse 9. What would you have done? Then his wife, you know this one, said to him in 2, 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? And she said, curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Watch this. In all this, Job did not sin with his, what? Lips. Wow. How are we doing with the people who bug us? You've gotten to the point where you've endured like that? See, it makes our problems look scaled in insignificance compared to this. I mean, I could look over at Job 13. You know that he's made these famous statements throughout the book. In, 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 Job, in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, he says, Though... He slay me, I will, what? Hope in him and I will argue my ways to his face. Though he slay me, I'm going to hold on to God. I'm going to hope in him. Look over at Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, great text. He said this. He said in 19 verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus or has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart fades within me. His, he knew that after he would be taken, that he would see God. He's clinging to God in the midst of his trial. Look over to Job 23. These are just classic statements. Last one, Job 23, 10. He says here, he said, behold, go back to 23, 8, looking for God. I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward. I do not perceive him. Job can't find him. On the left hand, where, when he is working, I do not behold him. And he turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. I can't find you, God. But he says, but he knows, verse 10, the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as what? Gold. Listen, incredible. He never lost his faith. He never abandoned God. And he never rejected God. And what's amazing is go back to the book of James now. Look at the closing statement as we close our time. Look what it says. It's almost, it's unbelievable if it wasn't for the scripture. Where it says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job in 511. And you have seen, it says here, the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and what? Merciful. Listen, the whole time God was at work in the midst of all of, all of it. His compassion and his mercy were on display. And, and the wording here just means that God is very kind. God has a purpose in your trial. He has a purpose in your suffering. He still reigns over all of it. Here it says literally that God is compassionate. And the word means that he's many-boweled. And it kind of spoke of the bowels or the stomach as the seed of emotion. It is to say that God has an enormous capacity for compassion. So not only is he merciful, but he's sympathetic, if you will. He's compassionate and merciful, sympathetic in the midst of the trial. 
So what was the outcome of Job's life? Well, it says this in 42 of Job. It said that the Lord restored the fortunes when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased twofold all that Job had. And it begins to say what was increased. It said the Lord blessed the later days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep. In chapter 1, he had 7,000 sheep. It says in Job 42 that he had 6,000 camels. In chapter 1, it says that he had 3,000 camels. It says in chapter 1 that he had 500 yoke of oxen. In chapter 42, it says that he had 1,000 yoke of oxen. In chapter 1, it said that he had 500 female donkeys. And now in chapter 42, he's got 1,000 female donkeys. And then in chapter 2, it said that he had seven sons and three daughters. And, and you would say, well, he doubled it. Well, the reason that some scholars think that he only had seven sons and three daughters is that his other seven sons and three daughters, where? Went into the glory of heaven. So he didn't have to double his kids because he already had seven addition and three, which would give him double when he would get in glory with him. Listen, God hugely blessed Job. God had something greater in mind than his trial, and he has something greater in mind for you if we believe the promise of Romans 8.28 that God causes what? All things to work together for our good. Not just spiritually, not just materially, but spiritually, excuse me. He became a man of God from and he displayed in his character. So listen, if you're tempted to be impatient towards someone, if you're tempted to throw in the towel, if you're tempted to turn away from the Lord because of hardships, then remember his coming and reflect on his servants. This is what Jerry Bridges said, and I'm done here. He says, patience enables you to control your temper when provoked and seek to deal with the person in a way that heals relationships rather than exacerbates the problems. That's what patience does. He says, patience seeks the ultimate good of the individual rather than the immediate need of our own emotions. It learns, does it not, to be long-fused. Listen, what does patient look like? Well, it looks like the farmer, right, who kept waiting for the rains. It looks like the prophet's who kept speaking in the name of the Lord. It looks like Job, who kept believing in the midst of trials. The farmer waited, the prophets spoke, and Job endured. And listen, so can you. So can you. Remember what Jesus said in 2 Corinthians twelve nine to Paul, where he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in what? In weakness.